0: God's Word, and that privilege is before us yet again this morning as we complete the last message in the series in Philemon. And we are anxious to do so so that we might hear what the Word of God has to say yet again for the understanding of true forgiveness. True forgiveness. We've been considering the implications of forgiveness from Philemon 8 to 25, and now we come to the last part in this study, specifically verses 17 to 25. You know that so far from verses 8 to 16, we've seen the appeal to forgive. In verses 11 and 12, the process to forgive. In verses 13 to 16, the reason to forgive. And in this morning's hour, we want to discuss both the desire to forgive from verses 17 to 21, and then the grace to forgive in verses 22 to 25. You know, as we understand this matter of true forgiveness, it seems to me that so many people in the church misunderstand forgiveness, either the vertical or horizontal forgiveness that we've been talking about, and I think so many people misunderstand it because they do one of two things. They either set mercy or justice against each other, which should not be done, or we tend to exclude one from another. In other words, some people say that forgiveness is either all mercy and no justice whatsoever, Or that true forgiveness can only occur when justice and mercy are synonymous. Both are not true. To say it another way, one person might believe that they're extending mercy with no boundaries or standards and that that is true mercy. That's not correct. Or someone else may be saying that the only mercy, the only true mercy is when there is no mercy. And that is not correct. One would be like a mother who allows her children to run wild and then makes it sound as though their children could do no wrong at all. That's an incomplete definition of mercy. And the other is like a father who always disciplines his children mercilessly as though that's the only way to love them. And that is an error as well. Beloved, the perfect balance of mercy and justice is when you have a situation like what the Apostle Paul describes here in Philemon. Notice how he combines mercy and justice in verses 17 and 18. He says, If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. You see the balance there? When Paul says to Philemon, accept Onesimus as you would me, that is an example of mercy. And then the statement, if he has wronged you, charge that to my account, that is the appropriate justice. They go together. Mercy is never at the expense of justice, never. And justice is served by mercy's desire to forgive. And this text is a wonderful affirmation of both mercy and justice, the mercy and justice of forgiveness. And for this morning, when we talk about the desire to forgive from verses 17 to 21, I want you to notice three realities that buttress our desire to forgive, that give it foundation, that give it impetus to really desire to forgive Other people. The first is this. A desire to forgive is based on a desire to first affirm our mutual union with Jesus Christ. A desire to forgive is first based on a desire to mutually affirm our union with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 17. And then in verses 18 and 19, he says that a desire to forgive is based on a desire to see restitution established, to see restitution established. That's the appropriate justice that goes alongside mercy. And then thirdly, Paul says the third reality of a desire to forgive or what is just beneath the surface of that desire is really a desire to do more than simply forgive. He shows us that in verses 19 and 20. A desire to forgive is based on a desire to do more than simply forgive. Now, let's talk about the first. The first reality in your desire to forgive someone else is based on, is a foundation underneath a desire to to affirm our mutual union with Christ. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, I have led you to Christ, he says in verse 19. And because I was the spiritual progenitor to your faith, because I was your spiritual father, I want you to know that that if I were the one who had sinned against you and I was the one who was coming to Colossae to seek your forgiveness, I know that you would do that because you would have readily understood that God had used me to bring you to the place where Christ forgave all of your sins. And you love Christ and you want to be forgiven of all of your sins and Christ has done it through my preaching of the gospel to you. And Onesimus now comes with a sin against you, just replace your thoughts of him with thoughts about me. If we're a partner, if we're in this together, then I want you to forgive him as though you were forgiving me, Paul, myself. You say, well, where does your principle of this this union with Jesus Christ come in? Well, look at the word in verse 17 that Paul uses for partner. He says, if then you regard me a partner. That doesn't really come out clearly in the English text, but in the Greek text, it is the word koinonia, koinonia. And that's a very familiar word often used in the church, maybe to talk about an adult uh, Sunday school class or uh, maybe a youth group uh, termed or coined koinonia. And it really is the word for fellowship, or maybe even better, partnership as it's translated here. I like to define it this way. Fellowship is believers sharing in the common life of Jesus Christ. That's really the essence of it. As I told you a time or two ago, fellowship, the word koinonia, is also used to contribute money to the needs of saints. It's listed in that way in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when Paul says, you contributed to the needs of the saints, and he uses the word koinonia. So it obviously includes the sharing of even your material or financial wealth with other people. That's a part of fellowship. But fellowship in its essence is the fact that every one of us, if we know Christ, have shared in a common bond, a common union, a common fellowship, a common sharing in the common life of Christ. And that's why Paul says, listen, if you regard me as a person for whom we have a common bond with Christ, a common life of salvation. If you regard me as a co-laborer in the gospel, as someone who led you to Christ, who gave you spiritual life on human terms, you should accept then Onesimus. Because he now shares our common life in Christ as well. He's been saved, Philemon. Can you believe it? You remember he was that runaway slave and he left you and he did everything he could to make your life miserable miserable by leaving? He's now come back. And He's not come back just as a, an unbelieving slave for you to whip. But He's now come back to you as a believing slave for you to embrace and forgive. Paul loves the word koinonia because it so captured the essence of fellow believers toward each other. He says in 1 Corinthians one nine that we as a collective body, the Corinthian church, have a fellowship with the saints, a common life, a common sharing. He says in Titus 1.4 that Titus is my true child in a common faith. That's the word koinos, common. Same word, koinonia. It's the idea that Titus is my true child and what we share together is something that unbelievers have no idea about. We share in a common faith in Christ. We share a common life that is enriched by our union with Jesus. That's why several months ago when Pastor Jeff Kratz talked in our communion time about 1 John 1, he defined fellowship as a sharing in the common life. It's really synonymous with the word salvation. We have fellowship because we're mutually in union with Christ. We're saved. You know, fellowship is not just cookies and punch in the fellowship hall. That's a part of it. That's very much a part of it. Rallying around the Word of God, rallying around our common salvation and talking about the Lord and talking about each other and talking about what God is doing in the world and what God is doing in our families, that's fellowship. There's no question. But it's more than that. It's our common union with Jesus Christ. And Paul says to Philemon, look, if I would have been the one who sinned against you, you would, because of our mutual salvation, our partnership, our union with Jesus Christ, you would have forgiven me. Well, accept Onesimus now, as you would me. And you remember I have told you on a number of occasions in this series that the word forgiveness itself is never mentioned, which is sort of ironic because the whole book itself underlies the issue of forgiveness. And in verse 17, Paul comes as close as he possibly can to use the word forgiveness. I don't know why he doesn't use the word forgiveness, but he chooses maybe to force us to find out about the essence of forgiveness, even by not using the word. And he uses the word here, accept. Do you see it there? Accept him. And that's probably as close as we're going to get. Accept someone. And you see, to accept someone is to forgive them, in the truest sense. That's why I've mentioned to you many times that forgiveness implies always, 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 always that reconciliation is an essential part of forgiveness. Always. As I've said, you can't say that you forgive someone and then say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You see, that's to mitigate against what fellowship is. If fellowship is sharing in a common life in Christ, then you don't say, I forgive you, but I don't want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to share in the common life that we have. You see, that's the opposite of what forgiveness is. And even if someone says, I forgive, and then they say, I want to have no relationship with you, no reconciliation with you, then maybe they're not sharing in the common life of Christ. Because fellowship breeds a desire for reconciliation. What is the word here for accept? It's the word pros lambano. Pros means with. Lambano means to take or to receive. And Paul is saying, I want you to take Onesimus with you. Take Onesimus to you. Take him back into your household. Accept him. Take him with you. Receive him unto yourself. Paul is thereby indirectly requesting not only the forgiveness of Onesimus, but also his reinstatement into the household. Not just the fellowship of believers who met in his house, but also into the very workplace that he had before, the home. Literally, take him to yourself as myself. Isn't that so beautiful? Take him to yourself as myself. If you were going to forgive me, then forgive him for He has my very heart. And so do you, Philemon. So let's be reconciled with each other. You see, beloved, your desire to forgive fellow believers should be based on an affirmation of our mutual union with Jesus Christ. And it all stems from the fact that we have been forgiven, therefore we forgive. Since God in Christ has forgiven us, we forgive others. There can never, ever, be a breach, a real breach in our relationship, no matter how many sins are committed against us. Seventy times seven. That's why it, it so grieves me when I hear of churches that name the name of Christ that are evangelical in name and they split. Oh, it so grieves my soul. Because the world looks at that and says, you're no different from us. You can't get along either. You can't reconcile. Wait a minute, I thought that Christianity was based on reconciliation. And someone says, well, it's not theology, it's preferences. Well, listen, my friends, if it's preferences, then Romans 14 and 15 says, I'm to prefer your needs above my own, and you're to prefer my needs above your own. We have to be able to show the world that we will defer to one another if they are true preferences. And if it's theology, then yes, we must divide If the cardinal issues of the faith are, are lost, if the truth is disobeyed, if, if it's chucked away, if there's impure leadership, if their morality is unrepentant, then yes, we must divide, but only then, only then, when there's, when there's moral impurity that is unrepentant, and when there's doctrinal defection. Otherwise, we never separate for any reason, at any time, forever. Because we're showing ourselves and we're showing the world what true reconciliation is all about. I can't tell you how grieved it makes me when I hear someone say, well, I'm, I'm going to leave the church. Maybe not this church, but any church. I'm going to leave the church because of this or that. And they're all preferences. I don't like the preaching or I don't like the times of the services or I want to go to this church because the music is better or I want to do this or that. We want to go over here because our friends are over there or we don't think this is a friendly place or whatever. My response to that is that is such a shallow set of reasons to leave a local fellowship. In fact, they're they're unbiblical or non-biblical reasons. I'm not saying that a person is in sin. I'm just saying they have no biblical basis to do what they're doing and to think what they're thinking. Because the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible only knows that you are to defer, 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 and work and serve and serve and serve. And that we should have a common identity, a common union with Jesus Christ, and we never break that union. Christ would never do that with his bride. Never. And it all stems because we have been forgiven. And we work at forgiving and forgiving. You say, well, what do you do when there's a problem in the church? What do you do if there's a whole host of problems in the church? What do you do if you just are not satisfied? You get in there and you work and you pray and you fast if need be, and you talk, and you pray some more, and you work as hard as you possibly can to be a light. You do everything within your power to reconcile and to forgive and to love and to serve and to do everything to the glory of Jesus Christ because He is the head, and that's what He wants from us. And it's all stemming from our mutual union with Christ. He's the head. We follow the head. We commit ourselves to the task, and unless it's doctrinal defection... Or impure leadership that is unrepentant, we stay, we work, and we show the world that there will be no factions, no divisions among us. Secondly, Paul says that a desire to forgive is not simply based upon our mutual union with Christ, but he says also that it is based on a desire to see restitution established. Verse 18. But if he, Onesimus, has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. You see, it is clear from the context and even from the words that Paul chooses to use here to describe what's going on that Onesimus had probably taken some money when he left originally. Or, at the very least, what he left behind was work to be done, and so Philemon had to find someone else to do that work, and so there was really an issue where someone had to be diverted from their task to take up Onesimus' task, and money was lost. Either way, we don't really know for sure, but what we know about it is this, that Onesimus had done something wrong, and Paul either knew what was wrong or was suggesting that if there was wrong, He says, charge that to my account. We'd say it like this today. Put it on my bill. Be like a duck going into a drugstore and saying, put it on my bill. That was for the kids. And (laughs) Paul says, listen, if there's anything that he's owing anybody, he needs to make it right. And he wants to make it right. He's going to come with Tychicus. I'm going to send him my letter, and it's for you, Philemon. And when he comes, he's going to come with a repentant heart and a desire to return any kind of money that he owes you. And you know what? Since he's poor as dirt, I will repay anything that he owes. What a a mature man, Paul. He was a friend, wasn't he? Listen, if if he has any needs... Needs to repay anything, I'll I'll take care of it. You say, well, wait a minute. Is it true then that forgiveness is not enough? Is it true then that mercy is not enough? You know what? That's true. That's true. If someone has been defrauded, if money has been taken, if something has been stolen, then in addition to the seeking and the granting of forgiveness, restitution must be made. Some people, I think, believe that because we live in the New Covenant age, that restitution as an Old Testament law or principle has been done away. That's not true. There's nothing in our New Testament that says that restitution is like that justice that now goes sort of flying out the window and that it's no longer necessary. We just forgive. No. Remember now that when someone has been offended by something being taken from them, even though they can grant forgiveness, that which has been taken is still a loss. And that loss must be returned to them. You say, how so? Well, look in your Bibles back at Exodus chapter 22. And since no New Testament passage that I'm aware of negates or abrogates the principle of restitution, we go right back to our Old Testament. It's part of the Scripture as well, a major part. And it says in Exodus chapter 22, these words in verse 7. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, and it is stolen from the man's house, and if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. See, that's restitution. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. In other words, he concocted a story that said, you will not believe this neighbor. This robber came in and stole your property. Can you believe it? And someone says, well, I think we need to go to court to allow the judge to adjudicate whether or not that's a fact. And it says, for every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, you know, that was very much an agrarian society, not technological as we know it today. We could say a computer or a house or a car, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges, he whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. In other words, that you come before the judge and the judge says, yes, he wasn't telling you the truth, he as your neighbor did take your property, concocted a story, it wasn't true, and we the judge have determined that that is in fact a lie, then he should pay double. Or if it wasn't a lie, if a thief really did come in and steal it, then he should pay double. Verse 11 says, An oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. In other words, if a robber really did do it, and if he makes an oath and says, I didn't do it, I promise. And he did not lay his hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it. He shall not make restitution, but if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. Maybe that implies that that another animal has taken his vengeance upon an animal for food or for violence, and if it's torn to pieces, there's nothing that that the owner or the one who borrowed it can do, and he shall not make restitution, but... If it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. Verse 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. In Numbers chapter 5, verses 5 to 10, there's also a biblical injunction for restitution. You say, how does all of this relate to us? Well... I'm not suggesting that we have a precise one-to-one application. Obviously, it's a different time and a different season, but for us, the principles are the same. In fact, J. Adams, in his helpful book, From Forgiven to Forgiving, says, I do not bring up this whole system, the law code of the Old Testament, I do not bring up this whole system as the law code that necessarily must be followed today but certainly the principles of it should be followed in spirit as closely as the modern situation allows by the church to which judgment is given. In other words, the leadership of the church. We're not judges like the Old Testament, but the leaders of the church should be able to mediate, as per 1 Corinthians 6, who is right and who is wrong, so that we will not go to the world's courts. He goes on to say, the crucial factor to keep in mind is that restitution has as its object not only the restoration of the loss, including interest in money or kind that would cover substantial inconvenience, injury, or loss occurring as the result of the act. But this restoration, this restitution, also is the removal of all stumbling blocks to the future reconciliation between the wrongdoer and the one wrong. In other words, it's not enough just to forgive. If you've stolen from another person, you say, please forgive me for stealing this. And I will make restitution to you. What are your terms? I will repay you. So that full and complete reconciliation takes place. So that at no time can that person who has been offended ever look back on that and say, well, yeah, I I forgave the guy, but he still has my money. He still has my goods. I'm still at a loss. You say, yes, but doesn't 1 Corinthians 6 say that if it's two believers with each other, that if it cannot be determined, or if, instead of going to a law court, it says that one person should rather be defrauded. Yes. Yes. If ultimately it cannot be determined through that mediating process in the church what is going to occur, then one should rather be defrauded instead of taking it to the secular courts. You say, well, let me ask you this. What about the case of a Christian defrauding an unbeliever? What if you're working in an environment where you have a, an unsaved boss or an unsaved co-worker or maybe even an unsaved relative for which you've borrowed money or something and you've defaulted on that loan? Uh, should you seek their forgiveness since they're non-Christians and should you try to make restitution? The answer is yes. Yes, it is crucial. It is especially crucial for a believer who has sinned against an unbeliever to seek to make restitution. All these principles apply. They may not understand them. They may try to exact more than what you would want to do, more than what someone would reasonably consider fair. But the principle of the matter, and we'd have to talk about the specific scenarios and give the greatest amount of wisdom and care, but in the simple scenario, yes, restitution must be made and forgiveness must be sought, whether it's a believer or unbeliever. You say, well, what about the matter of confessing sin to an unbeliever, and seeking forgiveness, is that biblical? And the answer is yes. We should continue, even if it's not financial loss or material stealing of someone's goods, if it's simply a sin of a of a word of some sort. You said something you shouldn't have said or you unnecessarily criticize someone and you know in your heart that you sinned against them, what should you do? Yes, you should go to them. Now, it is true that unbelievers they're involved with themselves, they love themselves, they're looking out for their own best interests, they may not at all be interested in reconciling with you, but there's nothing in Scripture that says that you cannot seek their forgiveness. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, it really gives us the biblical principle here. It says, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. It's clearly setting as over against believers the opportunity to do good to unbelievers and how much more good could you do to an unbeliever than to seek their forgiveness for having sinned against them. It might even give you the opportunity for an open door to the gospel because they may say to you, now is that what you Christians do regularly with each other? You mean you confess your sins to each other every time it occurs? Yes, we should. We may not always do that. We're not perfect, but we want to do that. And we want to seek to do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. But since you're not of the household of the faith, I still want to do good to you. And so therefore, I want to seek your forgiveness. Will you forgive me for what I said to you? That was wrong of me. Please forgive me. Or how about Proverbs 3.27? Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. That's a proverbial statement that transcends time. Whenever you have the power to do good to anyone, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, don't withhold your power to do it. Seek to do good. Paul even tells Titus, I want you to tell the Christians on the island of Crete to do this, to remind them to be subject to rulers, to the authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. And here in the context, he's talking about unbelievers, authorities, rulers, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And he goes on to say in Titus 3, if perhaps, if in doing that, you would be a light of the glorious gospel of truth so that that unbeliever could say, wow, you guys, you guys must be serious about this sin stuff. And you say we are. And by the way, when you go, don't tell them I'm sorry or I apologize. Those are not biblical terms. You'll, you'll look in vain to find those words there. And as Christians, we need to set the standard. You see, in Christianity, we use words like sin, forgiveness, brokenness, restitution, contrition, repentance. And we should use that with each other, but we should certainly use that for unbelievers because they need to understand our lingo. We don't want them to understand the lingo that we use that's very common to them because it's unbiblical lingo. Don't say "I'm sorry." Because when you say, I'm sorry, it could mean in their minds, and it could even be in your minds and your motives and your heart, I'm sorry for the incident occurring, but I'm not sorrowful over my sin. And isn't it true that we sometimes do that? We don't want to use the word sin. We don't want to seek forgiveness. And so we say, listen, I'm sorry about that. Well, the Bible knows nothing of that. In fact, the Bible draws a fine line, and it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that the world has sorrow, but it's a sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. But what we need is what Paul calls a godly sorrow, and the way he defines it is repentance. He does yeoman's work there in 2 Corinthians 7 to describe what repentance is. He says, what anguish, what burden in your soul to make it right. And don't say I'm apologizing to people. You know that the origin of the word apology is from the Greek text itself, And it's apologia, and it means what? To make a defense. To make a defense. And when we go seeking forgiveness, we don't make a defense. That's the very thing we're not doing. We say, I have no defense. I sinned. Will you please forgive me? I'm not apologizing. I'm seeking forgiveness. Apology is a word that the world uses because it does not want to use the word sin. Have you been noticing in the media that while some are using it, so many others are using with all of these things surrounding the president, things like being sorry, Apologizing, Well, that's because they don't want to call sin for what it is, sin, and they don't want to seek forgiveness. You say, well, be practical for me. Well, I was reading again in J. Adams' book, From Forgiven to Forgiving, and he gives a scenario that I think is very helpful with regard to this matter of how should I approach unbelievers and my sin. He says this, Christians aren't sinless. Suppose for a moment I am the one at fault and I must go and confess my sins to some unbeliever I have wronged. How does that work? He says, let me suggest the scenario. Your name is Sally, and you are a Christian. You belong to the local garden club, which is a mixed bag of believers and unbelievers. At a meeting of the nominating committee, of which you are a part, you fear that your recommendation of a fine Christian member will be turned down by the others on the committee in favor of an unbelieving woman you are sure will make life miserable for everyone during the coming year. In the discussion of the second potential nominee, you refer to something you said she did, but you use a good deal of license in presenting the facts. As a result, her nomination fails. At home that night, you discuss the matter with your husband, and he has the courage to gently point out your sin and ask you what you are going to do about it. For which you say, thank you, dear. What should you do? Well, to begin with, you need to get on the phone and call every member of the nominating committee and ask them to meet with you as soon as possible before announcing the nominee. The gracious thing to do is to invite them to lunch at your home. Then amidst their puzzlement, you must confess. And here is a suggested confession. What I said about Patty the other day wasn't altogether true. Because I was afraid she would be nominated and I didn't think she'd make a good president, I embellished the truth. It is not true that she did so and so or that she said thus and thus. Please forgive me for lying to you and influencing your vote by information that is untrue. I still think she'd be wrong for president, but I sinned against her, against you, and most of all, against God. That is why I've called this meeting. Though I certainly didn't act like one when I was with you the other day, I am a Christian. And as a Christian, I failed God and the rest of you. Please forgive me for leading you astray. You may wish to reconsider your vote in light of this truth. Then, since gossip is so prevalent, and Patty has by now heard, or will soon hear, the falsehoods you told about her, you should go to Patty and ask her forgiveness as well. But go after straightening things out with the nominating committee. You will want to tell Patty not only about your lies, but also about how you rectified the situation. Now you may ask, can an unbeliever forgive? The answer is no. No in the sense that we understand it as Christians. That's why the apology system was developed in the place of genuine biblical forgiveness. Because he knows nothing of God's forgiveness, an unbeliever certainly can't imitate it. Nor can his heart be right if he attempts to do so. He makes no promise before God that he will not bring it up. He doesn't have the power of God to enable him to keep the promise, and his motives could very well be all wrong. But nevertheless, you must ask him to forgive you, you must do the right thing, and he is required to do so too. God Himself regularly commands unbelievers to do what is right, even when He knows they can't. Ability is not the measure of responsibility. Very wise words. It tells us the proper process. Now, you may be thinking, well, I have a scenario that's a lot more detailed than that. It has a lot more contingencies there. What can we do about that? Well, we can talk about that tonight because we're going to do a Q&A on forgiveness You'll be able to answer, ask any question and hopefully we'll have an answer as to how we can deal with these things appropriately. But suffice it to say this, the desire to forgive comes out of the wellspring of knowing that if it's between a believer and myself as a believer, I want to forgive them because of our mutual union with Christ and I want to make all and any restitution so that I can pave the way for complete and full reconciliation. And then thirdly, the desire to forgive is based on the desire to do more than simply forgive. What do I mean by that? Well, in verses 20 and 21, it says, Yes, brother, yes, brother, let me benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm not telling you to forgive people by rote, I'm not telling you to forgive people mechanically. I'm not telling you just to use the words, yes, Onesimus, I forgive you. It's not even a matter, Paul is saying, of having your money back. It's forgiving from the heart. It's accepting the restitution with gratitude. And it's even going far more than that. You say, what's far more? I don't know exactly what Paul is referring to here when he says, I, I know that you'll do more than what I say? We don't know exactly what that is, but let me suggest something as a possibility. Could it be that Paul is asking, while not directly asking, since Onesimus has come to faith in Christ, that Paul would be asking Philemon to forgive him and to release him as a slave? He might be saying that. He might be saying, listen, don't just forgive him. Do more than that. Release him, because now he's a useful member of, of the Gospel Committee, and we need him, we need his heart. He doesn't need to be tied down with this slavery anymore. By Philemon, forgive him and release him and let him go. And if he stays with you, and if he stays with the church in Colossae and he serves the Lord in a wonderful way, that would be great. And if he were able to come back to Rome and minister to me, boy, that would be great too. We don't know exactly, but we do know this. Paul says two things. I want to be overjoyed. I want to be benefited. I want to be refreshed to see this reconciliation take place. And secondly, I want you to do far more than simply forgive him. What does that mean for us, possibly? Well, it means that when someone sins against you and they come and they seek that forgiveness, what should we do? Well, we should do more than just saying in a rote fashion or a mechanical way, yes, I forgive you, but from the heart we show them that we forgive them. We embrace them. We give them what the New Testament calls the kiss of love, but we greet them with a holy kiss. We reach out and we love them, even physically, to show them that we hold no bitterness or anger in our heart. One of the things we've done in our little family to try to ensure this, and I know it may seem, at least at this point, somewhat forced or somewhat mechanical, but at least the principle is there, that when one of the members of our family has been sinned against, When the other member of the family who sinned against them comes and seeks their forgiveness, the person not only grants it, but they give them a hug. They embrace them. Just the other day, I was in the garage, and little Lucas, who's two years old, two and a half, sinned against Lindsay, and he sought her forgiveness while not being able to say all of the words. He immediately ran up to her and grabbed her around the legs in that show of, will you forgive me? And Lindsay instinctively said, yes, Lucas, I will forgive you. And he didn't even say anything. And it's because we taught them that when you have been offended, in order to show your brother or sister in Christ that you do in fact forgive them, show them. Don't have any bitterness or anger in your heart. Show them that they're forgiven. That's why Romans 12, 17 to 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed them. I told someone just recently, if you hold this bitterness and anger against this member of your family, It will eat you up. But instead, if they seek your forgiveness, grant that forgiveness and prepare a meal for them. Prepare a meal for them. If your enemy is thirsty, give them a drink. Give them a hug. Give them money. Give them time. Give them effort. Show them that you will do everything in your power to forgive them and harbor no bitterness. And when you do, you'll be doing it in the way that God has forgiven us? Because didn't He wrap His arms of love around us? Didn't He give us Christ, the cross? Didn't He forgive all of our sins, past, present, and future? Doesn't it say of us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No condemnation. Ever. It's done. Finished. You say, but that's so hard. Hard. It's so hard to do that when people sin against me so. Yes, it is hard. But it's only hard when I lose my focus, when I lose my perspective. Or when I keep my perspective that God in Christ has forgiven me all of my sins, how could I not forgive someone else for the petty sins in comparison against me? It is petty in comparison. Think of all the sins you've committed and will yet commit. And then think of the sins against you. There's no comparison, is there? We know our hearts so well that when someone sins against us maybe once or twice or a hundred times, we know we've sinned against God a million times. You know what we need at this point? We need the grace to forgive. The grace. And that's what he tells us in verses 22 to 25. Notice it with me. He says in verse 22, At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. You say, what amount of grace is there. That doesn't sound like grace. It just sounds like Paul saying, I hope to come to you. Well, let's call this the grace of accountability. Think of it. Think of it in your mind. Paul says, I'm going to send this letter. It's on Onesimus' behalf. I'm going to send it through Tychicus. You're going to receive it Philemon. Onesimus is going to be standing face-to-face right before you, and when you see this letter and when you read it, just know this. At the end of the letter, I'm going to be saying, That hopefully in the providence of God, I'll be coming to you soon. I'll be released from this prison and I'm going to find out in person whether or not you have actually forgiven Onesimus. I call that the grace of accountability. Paul's going to be asking a good, solid question. Philemon, you've been forgiven by Christ. I know it. I helped lead you to Christ. Why aren't you forgiving Onesimus? Oh, I think Philemon would get the picture. And then in verses 23 and 24, if he says, if my personal accountability is not enough, then how about these fellows? Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he greets you as do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. You remember we went through those men detail by detail in our study in Colossians and we pulled out a character trait? Well, here Paul just bunches them all up and he says, I'll tell you what, this is the grace of examples. I'm going to give you a list of men who are my fellow workers and if they were talking to you, here's what they'd tell you. Philemon, forgive. Philemon Onesimus is asking for that. We've been forgiven so much now, we want to forgive. I, Epaphras, as your pastor, I've been forgiven, I forgive. Aristarchus, Mark, Demas, Luke, we've all been forgiven. This is the way Christians are. You need to forgive as well. And then, if Paul, as his accountability partner wouldn't work and if the examples of all of these other men wouldn't work verse 25 says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit there's grace there's grace if all of the human beings in your life don't work look to Christ he's the one who extends grace and he'll give grace to your spirit there's where the grace can come oh beloved have you forgiven people as we close this morning, I remind you of what I said as we began. How can justice and mercy meet? That's why I read Psalm 85, where righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They can go together. They must go together. John Insor, who has written a very, very good and powerful book called Experiencing God's Forgiveness concludes our entire series on Philemon with a very poignant and potent illustration. He says this, Magali was illegally brought from Haiti to Boston by her father through Canada when she was 13 years old. She graduated from high school five years later. Then her father abandoned her to take up with his new wife. When my staff and I met Magali, John is a, a leader of three crisis pregnancy centers in the Boston area, he says, when my staff and I met Magali, she had no place to live or means of support. Because she was an illegal alien, she could not get a job, and she was pregnant by a man who did not want to provide for her and their child. Abandoned and desperate, she thought of getting rid of her baby. That's obviously why she came into the crisis pregnancy center. Instead, she drank ammonia to end her own life. We were able to intervene and help her, Seven months later, she gave birth to a beautiful son. I couldn't get her a job, though, because obtaining a green card, the legal permit to work, is a long and expensive process. A friend, quote-unquote, offered to help Magali obtain working papers for $500. She borrowed the money and signed the papers he prepared for her. At the court hearing, the judge asked Magali a series of questions based on those documents. She immediately realized that the man who took her money had falsified the entire story of her life to gain her political asylum. She didn't want to lie to the judge, and since she could not validate her claim for political asylum, he immediately set a deportation hearing date. In tears, Magali called me and asked if I would go with her to her deportation hearing since she could not afford a lawyer. I had her sit down and write the true story of her life. I had her agree with her accuser that she had misled the court by signing false statements. I had I had her ask the court to help her understand what the right and proper steps were for obtaining working papers in this country with the pledge that she would work hard to provide for herself and her son if given a chance. To this, I added my own letter. Into the courtroom we walked. The seal of the United States government was in the center of the bench commanding respect and emanating authority. The judge sat above us in his formal black robe. Microphones and recorders noted every word spoken for the record. Magalie trembled in her seat below the judge. He spoke deliberately from rote, demonstrating that he had been through this process many times. With each answer, Magalie drew one step closer to expulsion. In broken English she finally told the judge that the document before him was false and that she had written her true story and would like to submit it to him. The judge stopped the proceedings and went off the record to read over her story and my accompanying letter. I saw before me a judge who was used to being lied to and who was committed to honor the laws of the land. You see, that's justice. I witnessed him set deportation dates for the two cases heard before Magalies He impressed me as a man governed by a sense of integrity and justice. Although principled, he was definitely not cold-hearted, for he was willing to let Magalie say what she had to say, no matter how broken her English was. He read her story in my letter. A copy was given to the government's lawyer at the next table, whose job it was to deport illegals. I held my breath and prayed, How could justice and mercy both be upheld? The judge turned to Magalie and instructed her as to the forms she would have to fill out and return in order to apply for a work permit. Grace! I thought to myself. He advised her. No, he urged her to get a lawyer to oversee the process. Magalie confessed that she had no money for a lawyer and that several, several pro bono places, that means an attorney who does work for free, pro bono places had dur- turned down her case already probably because of the fraudulent documents. Magali could not save herself, even with the court's instructions and patience. The judge shook his head in frustration. He was clearly considering what more, if anything, he was willing to do. Suddenly, he turned to the clerk and instructed her to go immediately to his office and retrieve the phone number of his personal friend. Then he turned to Magalie. Call him and tell him, I told you to call, said the judge. He will provide you a lawyer for free. Then he told her plainly, if she failed to call and follow his guidance and return the forms he needed, he would summarily deport her within 30 days after the date set for the next hearing. The judge wanted to show kindness to Magalie, but to ensure that it would not compromise the law and therefore his integrity as one sworn to uphold it, he sent his own personal friend to help Magalie into conformity with the law so that his stay of deportation would be legal and justified. He was working to win her the right to live here lawfully. For the first time, I could envision Magalie going to work every day and making a quiet life for herself and her son without fear. The judge was as aware as I of how gracious his help was. If he rejected it, if she rejected it, he would rightly have applied the law without mercy and deported her. I sat there deeply moved, muttering to myself, Behold the kindness and sternness of the judge. But I was thinking of God, really. As lawbreakers, we stand before Him who is sworn to uphold His righteousness. God's instructions on keeping the law are not enough. We lack the means to bring ourselves into compliance. But because of His loving kindness, God made a way for His mercy to be justly given to sinners who would otherwise deserve eternal deportation from His kingdom. He sent His own Son to do the work that we could not do. Meet the requirements of the law. And He did so pro bono. Free of charge. Free to us. Not free to Him. It cost Him His own Son. How could we not forgive others? Because we've been forgiven so much. Let's pray together. Oh dear Father, how could we withhold forgiveness? If someone comes and repents and makes restitution and seeks my forgiveness, how could I hold back? Oh yes, I may do it from rote, but what's in my heart? Is my desire based upon our mutual union with Christ and a desire to make it right and to be fully reconciled and to to do more than what's asked of me. Is that my heart? Is that what I want? Oh, Lord, make it so. Make me a forgiving person. Both by seeing Your grand forgiveness in what You've done in giving me Your Son when I was condemned by the law I was helpless and hopeless. And you stood before me as the righteous judge and just before the gavel came down with a sentence of deportation into an eternal hell. You said, wait a minute. I'm going to give this one my son who has perfectly fulfilled the law and who has died on their behalf. Oh, Father, allow us to be forgiving people based on being forgiven. We thank you for this series and what it means for us, both individually and as a congregation. May we show the world what it means to forgive. In Christ's name, amen.